Some of you know me, I know some of you, which means some of you don't. Uh, I am the minister at Glen Quarry Anglican Church, which is uh, in the next... Was that, was that a cheer? Who, who cheered? Oh, yeah, there he is. Yeah. Um, no one else did. Um, thanks, mate. Um, that's the exits over there, right? Uh, so good to be with you. Uh, David uh, asked me if I'd come and preach. Apparently when Joe's away, doesn't trust David to preach, so he gets other people in. Uh, and so we've been here before, haven't we, friends? Some of us. Uh, some of you, I don't know, and it's great to um, great to see you and have you here. Um, I love coming here. I love you guys. Um, seriously, I do. Uh, and um, we're going to be looking at this book that we've just had read to us um, at Glen Quarry. We've been reading through Jonah. Uh, we've we did that in June, I think. Yeah, that's right, in June. And I preached three sermons, the last of which you're going to hear tonight. We're going to concentrate on chapters 3 and 4, which are on page 898 of your Bibles in the pews, if you want to grab that and follow along, just to make sure I'm not talking complete rubbish. Um, but it was good to have the whole book read, because it's a fairly short book, uh, and the whole story is there. And I wonder if you have previously ever heard sermons on the book of Jonah or even know much about it, uh, usually our, our experience of, of Jonah is as a child with a children's Bible, the story of the fish, in he goes, out he goes, that's it, that's Jonah dealt with, uh, on we go, Daniel in the lion's den is next, right? That's, that's kind of how, how it works with children. Well, there's a little bit more going on than that, uh, and we're going to spend some time tonight thinking about those things. So uh, if you can open up with me your Bible, page 898, you're going to need your Bible. Just again, as I said, check I'm not talking complete rubbish. Uh, and also we'll be flicking through the Bible a little bit at the end as well. So if you're interested in that, keep your Bible open, uh, and we're going to pray. Let's pray. We're going to pray just uh, for help to understand uh, this. Uh, let's do that. A moment ago, we sang about God. We sang to God, you are rich in mercy. Uh, Father, we ask tonight as we look at Jonah uh, that we would be struck that you are rich in mercy and therefore we ask you would help us to sing your song of mercy rather than our own songs of self-interest. Help us to understand grace, uh, not just for ourselves, but for all those around us. Help us to understand your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, now, um, I've got a question for you. How far does grace, by grace I mean the forgiveness of God, his mercy, the way that he treats us in a way that we do not deserve, that of course is the heart of the Christian religion, isn't it? I don't know why, if you're new here to this whole Christian thing, I don't know what you're thinking Christianity is all about. Maybe you think it's about a bunch of people trying to be good. It's not. It's about a bunch of people who recognize they're not good, but that God does not treat us as we deserve doesn't treat us as though we're bad like we are. He actually goes, no, I'm going to treat you really, really well. That's grace, to be treated far better than you deserve. My question is, how far does that grace extend? Uh, I teach scripture in, in our local schools in, uh, in Macquarie Fields and Glenfield, and one of my favorite lessons to do, I teach stage three, because uh, they're old enough at that point to understand some of my jokes, uh, and more than you do, uh, and uh, we can have a bit of fun with them then. They're also old enough to understand some of the slightly more grown-up stuff in the Bible, uh, let the hearer understand, uh, and uh, one of my favorite classes in Scripture with them is to is where we look up a particularly really bad sin that one of the main characters of the Bible commits, because most of the main characters of the Bible are there to show us how bad we can be, not how good we can be, uh, and as we look at that, uh, what I'll do is I'll ask the kids a couple of questions. The first question I'll ask is this. And I'm going to ask you this question as well. 
have a little think about this. What are some of the worst things that people can do to each other? So think about what life is like in Ingleburn or in the local areas. What are some of the worst things that people can do to each other? What's the worst thing that's been done to you or you've seen someone do to somebody else? And there are some pretty horrific things, aren't there? Some pretty horrific things. Second question, can those things be forgiven? Can those things be forgiven? And now we get to the heart of it. They're simple questions, but they really do go to the heart of this fundamental issue. How far does grace, how far does mercy extend? Uh, actually, it's more pointed than that, isn't it? Because actually the question is, how far does your grace and mercy, how far does our how far does our grace and mercy extend? Where is the boundary of it? Where is the moment where considering what someone may or may not do to you or someone you love or just in general, where is the moment where you go, that's it, I'm not going there. Grace stops at this point. Or who is it that you might look at? And it's not a question of where grace stops, but actually whether it will even start. Ever been there? You just go, there's no way. There's no way. These last two chapters of Jonah open up that question for us in full force. Well, the whole book is about this question, but the last two chapters then just show it to us in full force. And as we dig into it, let's just remind ourselves how we've arrived there. Uh, we saw Jonah. Well, we see him get it wrong. At the beginning of the book, it was read to us. God calls him to go to Nineveh, which is the great capital of the Assyrians, uh, north of Israel. It's about oh, roughly 800 uh, years before Jesus, and God calls him to go there and preach against it because of its wickedness. And Jonah, of course, does the exact opposite. He gets on a boat and he tries to go away as far as possible. And he goes to a place called Tarshish, which in the original language means literally far, far away. Brilliant. God sends a storm and the sailors end up, at Jonah's suggestion, throwing Jonah off the boat, which is pretty much what he deserves for disobeying God. Now, if you want to hear a whole sermon on that, go to our website, glencoryanglicans.net. Uh, it's up there. It's a brilliant chapter. Uh, really, really exciting stuff to preach. Uh, but on we go. Chapter 2, God is not done with him and, and God sends a huge fish to rescue Jonah, whereupon he spends three days and nights in the belly of this inflated barramundi. And he prays this prayer, which we had read to us, it's chapter 2 of Jonah, which, while it's all true and correct, I think on reflection, as you think about what this man is like and what's already gone on around him, is something that doesn't match up with what he's been doing. And what's really interesting is that even in his prayer in the belly of the fish, he prays about God's love and mercy, but it's already clear... And it will become frighteningly clear now in chapters 3 and 4. But it's already clear by the time we hit the start of chapter 2 that Jonah doesn't actually really understand grace himself. So he talks about it, but will he act like it? And again, this is going to be my challenge to you tonight. The great thing about being a guest preacher is I get to come in, load up two shells, fire the gun, and walk out. Um, that's sometimes what you get guest preachers to do. So here's my challenge to you tonight. Can you talk about grace, but do you not actually act about like it? That's going to let you know already what the ambush is going to be. It's not going to be a surprise when it comes. This will be the question. Can you talk about grace? Can you explain it? Could you sit and write an exam all about it? But when it comes down to it, is it not what drives you? So we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So already this is far better than what we saw in chapter 1. Off he goes to Nineveh and Nineveh is an enormous place. 
See what the writer says? Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now, now, what is he going to do? Well, Jonah does exactly what he was told to do way back in chapter 1. God said, remember, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. And he does just that. And it is a cracker of a sermon. Verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, here it comes, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In the original text, it's written in Hebrew originally. It's just This sermon is five words. Yet 40 days Nineveh destroyed. It's a ripper. How do you rate that sermon? As sermons go, on your list of great sermons you've ever heard, where would you place Jonah's? I mean, it's short, which is perhaps a good thing. Uh, but it's not particularly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not particularly friendly, is it? He comes across a lot like those guys who stand around with the sandwich boards, you know, uh, at supermarkets proclaiming the end is nigh. But even those guys on occasion will manage the odd repent and believe the gospel. But Jonah doesn't even have time for that, does he? He gives them the bare bones of what God told him. Yet 40 days, Nineveh destroyed. Now, what do you make of that kind of sermon? How effective? Here's my question for you. How effective do you, do you think that kind of preaching is? There's a famous uh, video a while ago. I'm off my script. Uh, there's a famous video a while ago from um, a guy who's gone off the planet. His name is Rob Bell. And... Um, Rob Bell used to be vaguely evangelical, vaguely Bible-believing, and now he swims with Oprah, who, by the way, is not a Christian. You work that out, right? Okay. Uh, and Rob had some videos called the Numa videos, which was a couple of bit things. But one of his famous Numa videos was where he talks about bullhorn guy, the guy, the guy who stands out in public with his bullhorn, his megaphone, saying, "Yet 40 days, Ingleburn destroyed." And Rob goes, oh, bullhorn guy, I don't, I don't think, I don't think yet this is going to work. I don't think this is going to work. And you kind of want to sit with Rob and go, I think Rob's right, you know, I don't think this is effective. I mean, when you see those guys out on the streets, you just kind of want to go, oh, I know he's a Christian, I know I'm a Christian, but, but let's just hope nobody works out that we're, we're, we're both Christians. That wouldn't be good. See, there's a real temptation for us as well, isn't there, to, to back away from talking about the hard stuff. Which actually means we think God can't use this stuff. But Jonah doesn't back away. He just lays it out. Now, he lays it out for a different reason we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see. Uh, so by any popular reckoning, by, on the scale of sermons you've ever heard, if we went out into Ingleburn uh, tomorrow at the street at, 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 at lunchtime. By the way, I, I'm wondering if a bit of street preaching might be in order, David, when the weather gets better. I think out there on Oxford Street is the place to go. We should talk. We should talk about it. We should talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was thinking about Glen Quarry Town Centre, but it's it's private land, so you know. But public land, two local Anglican ministers preaching it up. Anyway, with Ingleburn <laughs> alive, that'll be fun, wouldn't it, next year? <laughs> uh, anyway, on we go. Um, Jonah, where are we? I'm here. Uh, Jonah just lays it out. It's a terrible sermon, apparently, which is why what happens next is actually so remarkable. Verse 5. Did you, did you think this is, this is crazy? See what happens in verse 5, chapter 3? The Ninevites believed God. A fast, which is always a sign of repentance, was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, in Hebrew, if you want to say everything, you mention one, two extremes, and everything in between, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
And even it turns out the king himself who issues this proclamation that everybody, including even the animals, need to put on sackcloth and fast and plead with God for forgiveness. And maybe, just maybe, God will relent, verse 9, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. Now, would you believe it? So imagine David and I do go down, actually you guys as well, because there's no reason you can't do it either. We go down to Oxford, Oxford Street here, and we preach this sermon. Yet 40 days, Ingleburn destroyed, which is not quite the urban redevelopment plan they were looking for, that they're discussing at the moment. But that's what we preach. And can you imagine the mayor and the local MP and everybody else tells everybody to call out to God for forgiveness? Could you imagine that happening? And all from that terrible sermon. All from simply the clear warning that God is going to punish this town. It's quite unbelievable, but not as unbelievable as what happens after that. See, this is, not, this is the first of three unbelievable things. Verse 10, the next unbelievable thing. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now that is even more unbelievable. But perhaps it's not for you, because perhaps you're used to it. Perhaps you're used to hearing how, about God being merciful and forgiving people. Perhaps you've been hearing that for years. Perhaps maybe you haven't been coming to church, but you kind of know that's what God is like. He forgives, forgives people. He's merciful. It is, after all, what we talk about so often. But don't let being used to the idea lead you to lose any sense of how unbelievable this is. It is utterly crazy that God should forgive us when we do wrong. The much more believable thing is that the God who is the perfect judge, who is himself perfectly good and holy, should give us exactly what we deserve. That would be believable. The more credible response of God at this moment to all of this should have been to say, Are you kidding me? You're famous for your evil. You've been at it for years. And now you think a quick sorry and everything will be okay. I mean, seriously. Now that would be a believable response. But not this, not, not mercy, not setting aside judgment. Friends, let's never lose our wonder at God's mercy. It is quite unbelievable, quite unbelievable. And this is, this is of course, it is a small example of the great mercy of God shown in Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross. I mean, think about what that means. That means that there is not a single thing that I have done or will do that God will hold against me if I trust Jesus to deal with it. Is that not just, is that not just crazy? Unbelievable. The heart of the Christian faith. And yet we go, oh yeah, God's merciful. But neither the repentance of the Ninevites nor the mercy of God are the most unbelievable thing here. I think in terms of how the narrative works. Because there is one thing that is even more ridiculous. It's right there at the start of chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased, and it became angry. And now, if you've been reading through the whole book as we did tonight, the whole thing now makes sense. Now you see why Jonah runs away at the command of God back in chapter 1. Now you see why his prayer in the belly of the fish just doesn't add up. It's hypocrisy, actually. Well, let's read on verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. I mean, put more simply, God, I knew you would show mercy to them. I don't want you to do it. I wanted you to kill them, so now kill me instead. But the Lord replied, verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, when you see a big question like that at a key moment in the Bible, you're also meant to ask the question as well. Right? We don't just sit there and go, oh, that's a nice thing. We're meant to ask that question. Is it right for Jonah to be angry? And of course, the answer is, of course not. He has no right. But he goes off and he sulks. Now, it's tempting at this point to tell you a story about one of my own children having a good sulk. One of them at the moment is going through the old sulking thing. Has a complete hissy fit when he can't have his own way. Maybe you've got stories of your own. But I need to stop myself because actually, as we're going to see, the point of this is to look deep within ourselves. It does me no good now to point to my children and how they behave. Think about the last time you behaved like a child. When was the last time you wanted to have a good sulk or maybe even had one? Because that's what this grown man does. He sulks like a child. And then verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, what's really interesting here, a little little side interesting thing for you, because I know you love these things. The city is there, and Jonah goes out to the east. And it's written in a way that deliberately evokes another eastward journey from, from much, much earlier in the Bible. Because right at the start, remember, there's this garden called the Garden of Eden. And... There's a man and a woman, and they mess everything up, and they get expelled out, eastward, out of the garden. And so I think what's going on here is, like I won't stake my house on it, but what I think is going on here is we're meant to go, oh, that's just like Adam and the woman getting chucked out of the garden. So the Ninevites then become the Garden of Eden, and, and Jonah becomes the, the bad guy getting chucked out. Like it's really meant, we're really meant to go, it's all messed up. It's all messed up. Anyway, out he goes, out in the east, makes himself a shelter, sits in the shade, and he waits to see what will happen to the city. Well, what will happen? I mean, he said, hasn't he, 40 days and Nineveh destroyed. What's going to happen? Well, well, nothing. That's the point now. You see, because God has relented from his anger. And Jonah knew all along that nothing would happen, at least no judgment, no punishment. So if he's waiting for something to happen, he'll be here a long time. He knows it. But you kind of get that he knows that, but then that's the thing about a good sulk, isn't it? A good sulk isn't, isn't, isn't reasonable, it's not rational. You don't want it to end because you're too busy sulking, and the more the thing you're complaining about carries on, the better your sulk may be. You can really get into it. And think for a moment, therefore, how Jonah has gone so far. I mean, in chapter 1, the storm rages, he ends up wanting to die. So, they chuck him overboard. God saves him, and he thanks God for not allowing him to die. And now here, he wants to die again. You almost want to go make up your mind, Jonah. He sits down and he waits to see what God will do to the city. But now, of course, we're more interested to see what God will do to Jonah. Right? We know what's going to happen to the city. They're going to be fine. What's God going to do with Jonah? Well, verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. And what's really interesting here is that the writer is very deliberate about the language. He says God provided a plant. 
Now, the last time God provided something, it was the fish that saved Jonah. And Jonah was happy about that. And now he's happy about this plant. So do you see this pattern that's emerging here? Uh, Jonah gets into trouble. Uh, God does something nice for him, provides a rescue for him, and Jonah is happy again. But he's not so happy when God does nice things for other people. Did you spot that? That's pretty much the point of the book, right? So God decides to teach him a lesson. Verse 7, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Actually, I think he probably went, it would be better for me to die than to live. I mean, it kind of just really puts it on a bit. So God provided, there's the word again, provided a worm to kill the plants and then wind and sun on top of it. So, And here's the point, so that Jonah can appreciate how good the plant was. And Jonah, of course, has another tantrum. Same thing he said when he saw God be merciful to Nineveh. Better for me to live than for die, to die. I mean, he is just over it at this point. So verse 9, God said to Jonah, question, same question as before, just phrased differently. We've got to answer it ourselves. God said to Jonah, verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plants? Now, what would your answer be at this point? Is it right for Jonah to be angry about the plants? It is, he said, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. See, Jonah did not tend it, he did not make it grow. God did. God did. God made it happen. God provided shelter from the wind and the sun. Jonah just sat there and sulked. But God still looked after him. And when God looked after him, Jonah was happy and he rejoiced. Because that's what Jonah does, you see. He rejoices when God is good to him. He thanks God when God rescues him in the belly of a fish. But as soon as he's outside on dry land, it was back to normal. Jonah, who expected God to be good to him, but didn't want God to be good to anybody else. I mean, the hypocrisy of that song in chapter 2 is appalling. No wonder the fish vomits him out. And that's the point. The fish actually just goes, I'm done with this. You ever had a bad curry? Please tell me that's the only reason you guys vomit. Well, I ate some bad prawns a couple of years ago. Oh, my word. But you know what? As soon as it's out, it's gone. It's better, right? And that's the point. I think the fish are just going, I'm done with this. This guy's a hypocrite. Out you go. And then God sets him straight, verse 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Many cattle, it says in the NIV. And that's where the book ends. That's it. Verse 11. You've not made a mistake. Next page, Micah starts. You see that? That's it. If you did creative writing at school and you just finished like that, which is kind of what we did, right? Because they give you 25 minutes to do a creative writing bit and you just, the first 10 minutes, you are on a roll and you go in there and then she goes, goes, all of a sudden, five minutes left and you're like, the end. It's kind of just like, you ran out of time? Had to go to the next question? I don't know what's going on here, but no, it ends here deliberately, you see. You've not made a mistake. It ends with this very clear contrast. Let me show it to you again. Verse 10. 
chapter 4, verse 10. But the Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this plant, the plant that was all about him being looked after. Verse 11, God says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Jonah's concern is for his own comfort, for what he expects God to do for him. But God's concern is for this great city. And look, friends, they are evil. I mean, Nineveh was just a hotbed of evil. Undoubtedly evil, but God was still very concerned for them. Look how he describes them. More than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now think about that. My six-year-old knows his right hand from his left. I mean, if you can't tell your right hand from your left, you're in a sorry state, aren't you? I mean, that is a situation of real incompetence. And you're going to get into a lot of trouble. But God says, should I not have concern? Should I not care? about them. Now, that's a different way, isn't it, of talking about human evil. You see, as, as though it was the inability to get something right. But actually, it's a very accurate way of talking about evil. It's not the only way to talk about evil, but it's a very accurate way to talk about evil. Because it's how the Bible here talks about evil, and actually how, if you look at it, it very often talks about evil. It's like not knowing your right from your left. We just can't help it. We are incapable of getting it right. Doing the wrong thing isn't something so much that we consciously choose to do, but something we just cannot help doing because, frankly, we're idiots. Aren't we? One of the things I will say regularly to, um, to my scripture kids to help them understand this, I'll say, how easy is it, is it to, to do the wrong thing? And uh, Incredibly easy. How hard is it to do the right thing? Much, much harder. I know what my default is. The wrong thing, right? We can't tell our right from our left. This is how the Bible describes sin. Sin, of course, is that word the Bible uses for the way that we've rebelled against God. We don't want him to be king in our life, and then the way that we treat each other. Far worse than we should do. It describes sin as not just something that we're morally to blame for. Yes, we are accountable, but also something we just can't help doing because we're so messed up. Jesus himself said, everybody who sins, which is everybody, is a slave to sin. Slaves don't get a choice about it, they just have to do it. We're slaves to sin. Elsewhere, Jesus says it all just comes up out of our hearts. We just it, it's, it's from within us. The thing that drives us, it comes out. And when you look at it like that, as well as holding people accountable for what they do, you also have to have compassion, don't you? You have to have compassion for people. Because if someone is so messed up that they can't tell their right from their left, in one sense, you've got to feel sorry for them when they keep using the wrong piece of cutlery at the dinner table let alone all the other stuff that they're going to get wrong. And our sin is like that. We just can't help but do it. And God says, should I not have concern? Should I not care? Jonah cared just for the plant, which he did nothing to make grow. It was a gift from God, provided to save him. But God cares for sinners who can do nothing to stop sinning. So, what about us? What does this mean for us? Well, uh, i got three application points for you tonight. One short one, one really big one, and one little one added on at the end. Here's the short one. Here's an application point, and it just comes from Jonah's sermon. Don't think that God can't use the truth, any truth, to do his work. So the sermon that Jonah preached was classic fire and brimstone, wasn't it? But God used it to turn a city of 120,000 people to him. 
How often do we fear speaking about hard things that will put people off? How often is it we're asked a question, we know what the answer is, but I really do fear that if I say what I know the Bible says, what God says, one, this person won't like me, two, it'll actually probably turn them off. But let me, let's just be really, really clear. People we're talking to, if they're not Christians, they're already put off. They already don't want to come to Jesus. That is their natural state. You can't actually turn people away from Jesus more than they're already turned away. They're blind. You can't make a blind man more blind than he is. You can't make dead people more dead than they already are. It's impossible. No matter how hard you try. Don't worry, you won't be the one that messed it up for them. No, actually what we see here is that God uses the truth to turn people, even hard truth. Now, what I'm not saying is every message you have with someone should just be hard, hard words. Well, what I'm saying is when that moment comes, and that's the conversation you need to have, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Look what God can do with a really lousy sermon of five words. Don't be afraid of it. God is more than capable. Now, my second point, and this is the main thrust of the whole book, the challenge, of course, of the book of Jonah is to not be like him. Think about Jonah through this whole book. What a disaster he is. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he does not want God to show mercy. He knows that God is merciful, but he doesn't want God to be like that. He wants a nice plant to cover him, but he wants nothing for the people of Nineveh. And can't we be just the same? Don't we love it when God shows mercy to us? Don't we love it? If you're a Christian, I, I hope you are, I don't want you to ever stop thinking about how wonderful that is. But how excited are we about God showing mercy to other people? You see, if we're honest, often it's because we think they don't deserve it. Oh, not that person. Not that person. Awful, awful. I was watching a um, I was watching a um, uh, I was watching a documentary a couple of days ago. It's the 10th anniversary, 10 years since the the bombings on the London tubes, uh, when almost 50 people were killed in uh, three bombs on the London Underground and one on a bus in London. I said London enough times now. Uh, and they were catching up. They were catching up with um, survivors and also um, family members of those who'd been killed. And there was just one lady they were talking to who just, she just went, I can't forgive. I can't forgive. And actually, it was, it was it, totally eating her up. Totally eating her up. And it wasn't just the bombers she couldn't forgive. She couldn't forgive the politicians who she believed had made it this situation where these bombers were going to bomb these. It just completely, no grace, no mercy. And her reasoning was they were just beyond, they were beyond that. Now that's, that, that's an extreme position, and you understand why in people's hurt they can get to that point. But I don't think it takes that great extremity of what's been terrible that's been done to us or we see done to other people for us to practically go, I'm actually not interested in grace and mercy for these people. Or even worse, just to not care. Just to not care. I mean, this terrifies me. Preparing this sermon um, last month actually terrified me because I would then walk through Glen Quarry Town Centre and I would say to myself, Aldi, I think, honestly, you don't care about the people walking around next to you. You actually don't care. 
It's not that it's full of people who I know how bad they are and I really want them to rot in hell. It's actually they just don't care. I like the grace and mercy that's been shown to me. I preach about it enough. Sermon in point. But actually, do I actually care? And when we get to that point, we've not understood grace at all because that is the point of grace, isn't it? Nobody deserves it. Not one person deserves grace. Nobody, but we think we're entitled to it. Like the plant that grew up over Jonah. He loved that plant, although he did nothing to make it grow. What about us? There was a video out a while ago by um, Penn Gillette. He's the, um, the, the, the magician, the comedian magician from Penn and Teller. You seen Penn and Teller? Really good guy, really, really clever guys. Uh, and one of them says nothing, just stands there the whole time doing nothing, and then Penn does all the talking. And he's an atheist. And he did a, a video a while ago, he's talking about um, people who, who evangelize on the streets and stuff. And he said, look, I don't agree with these guys, but, but what I don't understand is the Christians who won't talk to anybody. Christians who are convinced that Jesus is right when he says this world is going to hell, and the judgment of God will fall upon it, and yet they won't, they won't talk to anybody. He went, how much do you have to hate someone to know that's going to happen to them, but you won't do anything about it? I mean, at least Jonah said something. 50 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Now, what I'm not saying is go and do harder. Right? So I don't want us to end up like the J-Dubs, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Do you have them here at Ingleburn Station as well? They stand outside Macquarie Field Station with their little trolley of magazines. Well, they actually don't stand. Mostly they just sit. And people go past them. And they're doing their duty. They're getting their hours in, literally. Because I've chatted to a couple of them. They're doing what they need to do. But there's nothing about them that makes me think, oh, I've just got to take one of those magazines. Now, that's not the answer. The answer is not to just go and do something. The answer is actually to listen to God's two questions at the end of chapter 4. Let me remind you about them again. One, to Jonah, to us. Do you have any right to be angry? And secondly, should I not care? The answer is to understand the grace shown to us for what it really is. It is undeserved. It is God being utterly unfair to us in a great way. And then understanding the same grace shown to us in the death of Jesus on our behalf. That same grace drives God to care for this suburb full of people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And I actually want to leave you tonight shocked by that and feeling slightly, slightly on edge about it. And I want to send you back to the cross. Look at the cross of Jesus. If you're a Christian, look at the cross of Jesus where you were forgiven. Stop and think about the grace and mercy we have been showed and then look at this suburb, full of people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And I think, that i just got to put the train on the track, off you go. Maybe we'll all go preaching, I don't know. There it is. But don't hear me say try harder. Hear me say, look at the cross where you have been shown grace. And then look at this suburb and just hear God's question, should I not care? Should I not care? Well, those are two of our three applications. The first one... Even an apparently duff sermon can have incredible effects to the big one. Um, should I not care? But third, one other thing. Uh, 
Because you know what's really interesting in the Bible is often the stuff in the Old Testament, the bit of the Bible before Jesus, that the New Testament, the bit of the Bible that's directly about him and the guys that came after him, there's bits where the New Testament looks back at the Old Testament and goes, think about this for a minute. And so it would be wrong, wouldn't it, to where the Bible does that, not to stop and listen to it. So that's what we're going to do. So if you want to flick with me, you can just listen if you want to. But if you want to flick to me, we're going to go to page 1007 in our church Bibles. It's Luke chapter 11. And we're going to hear what Jesus says about this passage we've been looking at tonight. So 1007, right at the bottom right. So 1008 will work for you as well. And I'm going to read. Uh, there's a whole bunch of crowds around Jesus here. And Luke tells us this. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. So nice soft start. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man, that's him talking about himself, be to this generation. See what he's saying? Saying the people around me are wicked. Kind of a bit like what Jonah said in his day. They all want a sign. They want some spectacular proof. But they're not going to get anything other than the sign of Jonah. What, did, what was the sign of Jonah? Well, he says Jonah preached. He was assigned to the Ninevites. He went and said, you're all for it. He preached a sermon. And he says, the people of my day ain't going to get more. I'm here preaching a sermon. And he preached basically the same sermon that Jonah preached. Jonah said, you know, 40 days you're all gone. And Jesus goes, you're all wicked. I mean, he did more than that. But you see how this has been set up. Let's read on a bit. Verse 31. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now someone, something greater than Solomon is here. See, a little bit earlier than Jonah, there's a great big king called Solomon. And he's incredibly rich and incredibly wise. And people come from everywhere, including this lady called the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. Have you heard of her? Queen of Sheba? She comes because she just wants to hear about how incredible Solomon is and what's been going on. And Jesus says, now something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. Which, by the way, if you're not yet used to reading about Jesus in the Bible, you'll find he does a lot of this. Talks about himself like he's very special. So people got to go, what, who do you think you are, God or something? Well, yeah, God, exactly. That's the point. Verse 32, here's the clincher. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus looks at the people around him and says, Do you know what? Even those people in Nineveh, when Jonah, and they were bad, when Jonah showed up, they all repented. So on that last day of judgment, they're going to look at you lot and say, You guys are idiots! Because all we had was Jonah, who we've already established was not a great preacher. And you had Jesus! And you haven't repented? I mean, are you out of your mind? And if you're reading in Luke's Gospel, you just go, you've had Jesus, who has healed, healed the sick, he's made blind people see, he's going to raise someone from, from, from dead, he's made the lame walk, he's, he's, he's made mad people be freed from their madness, he's sent demons home with a spanking. He's preached like nobody ever. He's shown incredible love and compassion to so many people who need to see it. He's going to go to the cross to die. You idiots! So look, I want to speak to you. If you are here, and you've been here, 
Even you guys there sitting on that pew, you've been, guys, seriously, stop it right now. I'm talking to you right now. And the rest of you. Could be you've been here, this is your first week here. Could be that you've been coming here for years. Now, many of you are Christians. That's great. You love and trust Jesus. You've said, yes, I am a sinner. You've acknowledged it. said, yes, I am a sinner. Jesus is my savior. I trust him because I am rubbish. I keep getting it wrong. On the last day, God will look at me and just go, let's not even bother counting because we all know where this is going. But because of what Jesus did, I'm going to be okay. Now, that's many of you here. But there are some of you here who are not in that position. And it could be you're here for the first or second week, or it could be that you've been coming here for weeks, months, years. And Jesus says, you have more than the people of Nineveh had. And he says it in this way. He says, are you out of your mind? They had Jonah. He was rubbish. 40 days, Nineveh gone. And that was enough for them. They worked it out. They got with the program. They repented. God was merciful to them. You have, you are, you're in the Sydney diocese. I don't want to say this in a kind of an arrogant way. Flip, you're at Barney's Ingleburn. Do you understand how great the preaching is you guys are getting week in, week out? Maybe not tonight. But do you know what I mean? Do you not get it? You are preached faithfully. You go to Bible studies. You hear about Jesus. You are clear on it. This is all there is. There is no more. If you're looking for more, if you're looking for something to get you over, if you're looking for more proof, a better sign, I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll, but I think this is what Jesus is doing here, so forgive me afterwards if he's not. There is nothing else. This is it. Please get with the program. Because on that last day, the people of Nineveh will stand up and go, are you out of your mind? Friends, if we ignore Jesus, there is nothing left. There is nothing better coming. What are you waiting for? I mean, how can there be anything better than Jesus? How can there be anything better than Jesus? Some of you know all about him. Many of you maybe don't know yet much about him, in which case, please do not leave without saying, ah, I've got to know more, even just to shut that Englishman up. <laughs> got to know more. Talk to myself, talk to um, Steve, is it, who is leading today. Talk to David, the minister at the back. But don't that, there isn't there isn't more than Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. And if we do nothing else tonight, but then to go, the sign of Jonah needs to make you stop and say, "That's it. I'm done stuffing around." Got to get serious about this. If they do that for you tonight, then I will be overjoyed. Because I don't, friends, I don't get grace and mercy. I mean, I receive it from Jesus. I'm like Jonah. We're all like Jonah, aren't we? I don't think I am overcome with grace and mercy and compassion for, for the people around me. But tonight I'm going, please, 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 get your act in order. Whether you've been here for a couple of weeks or for years, if you're not signed up, Jesus is not your Lord and Master. This is it. There's nothing else. So friends, a duff sermon will do it. Gosh, I'm praying right now that even my rubbish, my rant at you, I hope is faithful to Jesus, will do the trick. Secondly, should I not care, says God, should I not care? Friends, let's think about the grace and mercy shown to us if we're Christians and think about what God thinks about this suburb, where we live, where people don't know their right hand from their left. And third, if you're hanging out for more, there is nothing more. Do not let the men of Nineveh stand 
and, and say to you on the last day, what were you doing? What were you doing? We had Jonah. Someone far greater has now come. Friends, let's pray. But the Lord said to Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Father, we want to thank you for the grace and mercy you have poured out on this world in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for so many of us here tonight, we are thankful personally for that grace and mercy. Would you help us, perhaps where we've grown cold to it, where we have not thought properly about how good you have been to us and how little we deserve it. Help us to recapture a view of that. Help us to look once more at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see how much we are loved by you and also to see there how much you love the world. Give us, give us an ounce of your care and compassion for those around us. May it drive us just as your love and Jesus' love drove him to the cross. Help us to be captured by that. Help us to trust you as we speak to those around us, uh, particularly where there are sometimes hard words to say. And then, Father, I pray for those who are here tonight uh, who know about Jesus and yet have not yet chosen to follow him. Would they see the people of Nineveh who repented almost 3,000 years ago at woeful preaching? Would they consider Jesus? And Father, in your grace and mercy, would you bring them home even tonight and give us the great joy of knowing that that is the case. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.